Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of death, including the death of a child, animal cruelty, sexuality, and suicide. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Late in the evening of September 1st, 1905, occultist Alistair Crowley shivered alone in his tent. Crowley claimed to have unlocked ancient secrets and spoken to gods. But that night, he wasn't thinking about divine truths or spiritual revelations. He was nursing a grudge. Weeks before, he'd set out on a mountaineering expedition. Crowley and his four companions wanted to be the first to summit a certain Himalayan peak. The journey was exhausting and tempers flared, especially Crowley's. Eventually, some of his travel companions grew frustrated and abandoned him they'd continue on their own. Crowley did not take the rejection well. He griped to another climber that the traitors would die without him. Later that night, an avalanche roared down the side of the mountain. It buried the team that had ditched Crowley. One man escaped to shout for help. Crowley heard the commotion from his tent and knew his former comrades were in danger. And yet, he did nothing. He left them to die for defying him. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. For the next three weeks, we'll be taking a deep dive into one of the most influential cults in Western history, the Ordo Templi Orientis, or OTO. Its members included renowned science fiction authors, mystics, and the infamous occultist Aleister Crowley. While Crowley didn't found the OTO, he served as its leader for decades and shaped the order into what it is today. He would stop at nothing to follow his will. Next week, we'll meet Crowley's disciple, rocket scientist Jack Parsons. By day, Parsons broke boundaries in the field of jet propulsion. By night, he dabbled in dark rites to bring about the apocalypse. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by The Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. You may think magic has vanished from the world. These days, few people turn to herbalists or witches to heal their illnesses. There's no need to pray for rain when meteorologists can predict storms down to the minute. And by and large, we don't sacrifice animals to the heavens since we have science and technology to solve our problems instead. Nevertheless, according to sociologist Helen Berger, nearly 2 million people currently identify as witches in the United States. Over the past decade, approximately $21 million has been spent on tarot-related Kickstarter projects. And that's just a drop in the bucket when you consider that the psychic services industry, which includes fortune-telling, astrology, and other metaphysical practices, is worth an estimated $2 billion in the U.S. 
these contemporary occult and New Age practices share an ancestor, an occult group called Ordo Templi Orientis, or OTO. The OTO was first founded in Germany at the turn of the 20th century and started as a collaboration between occultists. One was Karl Kellner, an Austrian industrialist who belonged to several secret societies, including the Freemasons. We've discussed Freemasonry on this show before. It's a complex organization that requires members to study complicated Masonic philosophy to rise through the ranks. Each time they graduate to a new grade, Masons unlock hidden or secret knowledge. But Kellner was also interested in magical ideas learned from his travels through India and other world travels. Along with three other occultists, including Order of Illuminati member Theodore Royce, Kellner sought to establish a new group. It blended Masonic philosophy with secrets cribbed from other shadowy societies. Royce became the outer head of the order. Thus, the Ordo Templi Orientis was born. Like Freemasonry, the Order promised members that they'd unlock new, deeper understandings of philosophy by climbing up the hierarchy. But many Masons rejected one of the OTO's core beliefs, magic. That's magic spelled with a K, to distinguish it from tricks and stage magic. Members of the Order believed that their spells were real. Some of the OTO's secrets related to sex magic. Its founders believed practitioners could masturbate or have sex with one another during mystic rites to strengthen the spells. Vanessa is going to take over in the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. In an article published in the November 2021 issue of Frontiers in Psychology, a team of researchers determined under certain circumstances, orgasms stimulate the same parts of the brain as spiritual meditation. This suggests a biological link between sensuality and mysticism. The order likely adopted its sex magic practices from Eastern religions and philosophies, but its other rituals were heavily inspired by Freemasonry. That said, it differed from the Freemasons in significant ways. For example, women weren't allowed to be Masons, but the OTO wanted everyone to be able to join, regardless of their gender. Once the barriers to entry were removed, men and women alike flocked to the OTO. Occultism proved popular in Victorian England, and while the Order wasn't the only secret society that supported gender equality, its stance was unusual. By the early 1900s, the Order was an international movement. They had hundreds of initiates and lodges throughout Europe, but their success was short-lived. Almost immediately after the Order was formed, the founders got caught up in petty politicking, driving their students away. Members fled as the conflicts grew. Within a decade, the Order was in danger of disappearing. If the OTO was going to survive, it needed help. Specifically, it needed new recruits who understood sex magic and could entice others to join. And it didn't take long to find someone who fit that bill. During a trip to England sometime around 1910, Royce met a British magician in his 30s named Edward Alexander Crowley, or Alistair Crowley, as he liked to be called. Crowley was an infamous occultist and poet who held a lofty rank in a secret society known as the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. He was also a writer who published many pieces on his mystical beliefs, including the idea that sex could strengthen magic spells. This was one of the OTO's most closely guarded secrets, and Royce believed it proved Crowley was enlightened. 
Royce was so impressed by Crowley that he immediately inducted him into the OTO. Just two years later, Royce named him the National Grand Master of England and Ireland, a position directly below the outer head of the order. Which means that in 1912, 37-year-old Crowley was one of the most powerful Ordo Templi Orientis members in the world. Though he was a relative newcomer to the movement, he had the authority to reshape it. But Royce may not have realized just who he was dealing with. Crowley was notorious for his flagrant sexuality, open disrespect for Christian values, and impulsive behavior. That reputation would only get worse during his time with the Order. Before long, papers in England dubbed him the wickedest man in the world. And as one of the most hated men on earth, Crowley threatened to drag the OTO down with him. Coming up, a closer look at Alistair Crowley. Put yourself in the shoes of a real-life detective. Imagine examining the crime scene, gathering evidence and interviewing witnesses, feeling the pressure mount as you race against time to catch a criminal. Each week on Scotland Yard Confidential, the new Spotify original from Parcast, we enter the minds of some of the greatest detectives in history following in their footsteps as they hunt down suspects and solve seemingly impossible cases, like the scandalous murder of singer Cora Crippen in 1910, whose body was found in her cellar shortly after her husband skipped town, or the daring Hatton Garden heist of 2015, when a gang of elderly thieves made off with a haul worth millions, and the cryptic notes found at a murder scene during the First World War. Was it a clue or a red herring designed to throw investigators off? Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast made in partnership with Noiser, airing episodes weekly starting May 19th. Follow and listen to Scotland Yard Confidential for free on Spotify. Now back to the story. In 1910, infamous occultist Alistair Crowley joined the Ordo Templi Orientis. He immediately got to work rewriting the group's doctrine to fit his beliefs. In the process, he helped create the modern mystical movement. But to truly understand how he did it, we need to delve deeper into Crowley's formative years in England. His wealthy parents belonged to a strict Christian sect called the Plymouth Brethren. They believed Jesus Christ could return to earth at any moment. To demonstrate their faith in the Messiah's imminent arrival, the Brethren opposed any kind of long-term future planning. That included saving for retirement and buying life insurance. Every day after breakfast, the Crowley family and their staff read the Bible aloud to one another. Often, they focused on apocalyptic passages from the Book of Revelation, especially those concerning the great enemy of Christianity, the Beast. They interpreted these verses as warnings of coming plagues, persecution, and tribulation for believers. But those who didn't follow Jesus would suffer an even worse fate, an eternity in hell. In their chapter for the book, Christianity is Not Great, How Faith Fails, psychologists Marlene Winnell and Valerie Tirico noted strict religious upbringings can instill anxiety and depression in young people. This is especially pronounced when the denomination is authoritarian or fear-based like the apocalyptic Plymouth Brethren. When children are taught their faith is the only way to escape damnation, they learn to fear the outside world. As they mature, they may turn those fears inward and obsess over their perceived sins. These issues may have been especially pronounced for Crowley, since he was isolated from the larger secular society. When he was eight years old, his parents enrolled him at an evangelical boarding school. There, he was required to study, attend church, and read the Bible. 
Initially, Crowley recalls that he thrived in this environment, but his life took a turn in the spring of 1886. That year, his father, Edward, was diagnosed with cancer. When the doctor recommended surgery, he rejected the treatment, choosing to trust in Jesus and an alternative treatment instead. Crowley waited for God to heal Edward for a full year, until March 5, 1887. That evening, 11-year-old Crowley had a dream in which his father had died. The next day, he received word his dream had come true. Edward had passed on. The tragedy left Crowley bitter. In the years that followed, he wrote in his diary that he rejected Christianity and all those who practiced it. He saw them as hypocritical and cruel. He vowed to turn his back on his childhood values and become a sinner. When Crowley was a teen, he claims to have seduced a young parlor maid and slept with her on his mother's bed. When Crowley's mother found out, the maid was fired, though Crowley would not confess to his part in the situation until years later. As Crowley became an increasingly rebellious teenager, he and his mother were at odds. According to author Richard Kaczynski, she had the habit of calling him the Beast whenever he misbehaved, as a reference to the Beast in the Book of Revelation. His mother's nickname for him may have gone on to shape his self-identity. According to the American Psychological Association, a hypothesis called labeling theory suggests people often change their behavior to match the labels imposed on them. In Crowley's case, his mother decreed he was a sinful anti-Christian monster. Crowley embraced this designation. As an adult, he started calling himself the Beast. From there, his interest in the occult grew. Like many young, imaginative men of the era, he was interested in poetry and mysticism. When he was 23 in 1898, Crowley visited a bookstore and picked up a tome on Satanism and witchcraft. He bought the text hoping to become a devil worshiper, but over time he developed a more nuanced understanding of good and evil. Later in his life, Crowley said he didn't believe in the devil the same way Christians did. He didn't see Satan as evil or a tempter. He liked the trappings of Satanism, perhaps because he enjoyed scandalizing religious people. As he expanded his mystic knowledge, Crowley wrote extensively. His poems and essays argued magic, again with a K, was essentially a kind of science. Like chemistry or physics, it was a precise practice where combining specific ingredients could achieve a predictable result, as long as you knew what you were doing. But to acquire that knowledge, he needed to study under the masters. So he joined the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn in 1898. This secret society promised members could discover hidden ancient truths as they rose through the ranks. And rise he did. By January 1900, 25-year-old Crowley had ascended through the hierarchy faster than almost any other initiate, but there was still more to discover. However, many members of the London branch of the order didn't want Crowley to achieve the next rank. They had heard of his reputation as a troublemaker and a bisexual and didn't want him in the inner circle. One of the Golden Dawn members who disliked him was the poet William Butler Yeats. Yes, that William Butler Yeats, author of The Second Coming and Leda and the Swan. Crowley's squabbles with Yeats did not make him popular. Still eager to ascend the ranks, Crowley had the leader of the Paris branch initiate him. Then he returned to London, but they refused to recognize his initiation. 
By April of that year, Crowley decided to retaliate. He and another member broke into the Golden Dawn headquarters in London, then installed new locks on the door. Apparently, their plan was to force Yates and the other London magicians to recognize Crowley's position. Before Crowley could enjoy himself in the London temple, a police constable arrived and made him and his companion leave. Two days later, when Yates and other London magicians were in the temple, Crowley reappeared. This time, he wore a flimsy disguise, a black mask, a plaid cloak, and carried a sheathed dagger. Even in costume, Crowley didn't make it very far. According to one version of events, the Beast marched up the stairs to the Golden Dawn offices. Yates and another member were waiting for him at the top of the staircase. As soon as Crowley got close enough, the two men kicked and Crowley went tumbling down the stairs. What we know happened is that soon after Crowley arrived, Yates told him to leave and the beast refused. The men argued. Finally, a police officer was called and he escorted Crowley from the premises. Humiliated, he eventually accepted defeat and officially left the society later that year. Afterward, he traveled the world and dabbled in sex magic. He also blossomed as a poet, continuing to write about his experiences. Then, in the summer of 1903, 28-year-old Crowley's home life changed when he married a widow named Rose Scarrett. Like him, she was fascinated by mysticism and uninterested in conventional morality. The following year, the couple went to Cairo, where Rose claimed she began having visions of the Egyptian god Horus. Through the visions, Rose told Crowley the rituals he could perform to invoke Horus. He did as he was told and believed the magic worked. After channeling the Egyptian god, Crowley was put in contact with a higher spirit he called his holy guardian angel. The angel's name was Iwas, and he said he would deliver revelations to Crowley one hour a day for three days in a row. On April 8, 1904, he claimed he saw Iwas. The god looked like a tall, fit, dark-skinned man in his 30s. He told Crowley the secrets of the universe, including the most important moral principle, which superseded all others. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Thou hast no right but to do thy will. Inspired by this encounter, Crowley drafted a system of beliefs called Thelema, which came from the Greek word for will. According to Thelema, any action was moral so long as it advanced a person's will. But this didn't mean practitioners were free to follow every impulse or desire. Crowley argued that every being's will was to fulfill their destiny and find their proper place in the universe. Do what thou wilt was another way of saying, be who you're meant to be. In 1904, Crowley published the Book of the Law, which spelled out the principles of Thelema. He also included references to a scarlet woman named Babylon, who he claimed would mate with the beast and conceive a child. Privately, he called his wife Rose a scarlet woman, so we can infer these passages were allusions to his own sex life. And sure enough, that July, Rose gave birth to a girl named Lilith. Even as a busy new father, Crowley continued to study mysticism. He also explored other hobbies that had nothing to do with his Thelemic beliefs, like mountaineering. In 1905, the 30-year-old planned an expedition to the third highest peak in the world, called Kanchenjunga, right on the border of Nepal and India. At the time, it had never been summited. 
Accompanied by four companions and dozens of hired porters, Crowley started the climb towards the end of August, but it didn't take long for the team to start squabbling. They couldn't agree on the best route to take, what time of day was ideal for hiking, or where they should set up camp. Sensing trouble, several porters abandoned the climb early on. Another porter slipped on the ice, fell, and died. One day, Crowley saw the warning signs of an impending avalanche while the crew was trying to scale a steep ice wall. He knew the safest move was to stay where they were and to wait out the slide. But when he explained that to his crew, one porter panicked and tried to get away. Crowley hit him in the head with the side of his axe, trying to shock him out of his fear. His quick thinking spared the porter, but it didn't help morale. His climbing partners believed he was violent and irrational, so they took a vote on whether they'd allow Crowley to continue. And he lost. Three members of his team and three porters went ahead without him. Only one man remained with Crowley at the camp. But Crowley was the most experienced climber on the expedition, and they suffered without his expertise. The same day they turned on him, the mountaineers were caught in an avalanche. In an instant, snow buried almost the whole team. Two of the mountain climbers and one porter were spared, but four other men died in the ice. The two climbers who survived cried out for help and were within earshot of Crowley's tent. But the beast declined to go outside and see them. He refused to save his trapped friends' lives purely out of spite. When the deaths and Crowley's role in them made it to the papers, the truth of his callousness was revealed. In response to the press, Crowley leaned into his bad reputation. He made it seem like he could have helped his companions. He just chose not to. This may have been labeling theory at work. Crowley played the role of beast to the press, but privately, it's likely he was more traumatized than he let on. He never summited a challenging peak again after the avalanche. He still continued to explore and travel, though. On June 2, 1906, after arriving back in England after a long world tour, Crowley received a telegram from his wife, Rose. His daughter, Lilith, had suddenly died of typhoid. The loss devastated the family. Rose developed a drinking problem as she struggled to cope. That winter, Rose gave birth to another daughter, but the family continued to struggle. The pair divorced in 1909. Rose went into an asylum for several years, and she later remarried. While Rose battled her personal demons, Crowley confronted more literal forces of darkness. On December 6, 1909, the 34-year-old ventured into the Algerian desert to fight a demon called Koron's own with the help of a magical partner. He said it was paramount to advancing his spiritual knowledge, but it's possible he was just looking for a distraction from his emotional pain. In preparation for the battle, Crowley and his partner drew a circle and triangle in the sand and smeared blood taken from three sacrificed pigeons in the three corners. He chanted the words of a spell and a voice answered, I am I. From me come leprosy and pox and plague and cancer and cholera and the falling sickness. It was the demon Koron's own. According to Crowley, he was transported to another plane of existence to fight the spirit. There, he stared into a spiritual abyss and came to a shocking realization. He wasn't really fighting a demon, he was fighting himself. Crowley realized the secret to true magical power didn't lie in summoning spirits or casting complicated spells. He had to remove every barrier that separated him from the rest of the universe. 
his fears, his desires, and his ego. In this context, ego didn't mean self-esteem or arrogance. The ego meant something more like Sigmund Freud's theory, that a person's ego mediates conflicts between their impulses and their conscience. Basically, the ego helps assess a situation to decide when it's okay to indulge and when to show restraint instead. The ego plays an important psychological role, yet Crowley believed his was destroyed in the battle with Coron's own. According to historian Alex Owen in the January 1997 issue of Journal of British Studies, this left Crowley unable to moderate his impulses. The ritual was supposed to enlighten and empower him. Instead, it turned him into a monster with no self-control. Owen writes that after the ritual, Crowley was shattered psychologically and never recovered from the ordeal. At the same time, he was still reeling from the loss of his marriage and daughter. He must have been feeling particularly alone and untethered when he joined the Ordo Templi Orientis. As we mentioned before, Crowley met Theodore Royce, the group's leader, sometime around 1910. That was the first time Crowley learned about the Order, but he already believed in many of its doctrines. The magic he'd studied with the Golden Dawn and his travels abroad had introduced him to the same philosophies. In addition, Crowley had been hard at work spreading his own magical philosophy of Thelema, through publishing books and holding meetings. On the strength of that, Royce was impressed by Crowley. In June of 1912, he welcomed Crowley into one of the highest ranks of the OTO. Crowley was no ordinary initiate. Soon after he became part of the inner circle, he began to reshape OTO theology to mesh with his personal beliefs. In essence, he bent the order to his will. Coming up, Crowley's influence on the OTO. Now back to the story. After occultist Alistair Crowley was initiated into the inner circle of the Ordo Templi Orientis in 1912, he reshaped the group's hierarchy. Royce put him in charge of the OTO in Great Britain, and Crowley gave himself the added title of Baphomet, the satanic goat deity. First and foremost, the 37-year-old wanted to differentiate the OTO's structure from that of the Freemasons. To do that, he wrote a new charter and codified clauses about women's involvement. He designed new rituals based on his own magical practices and wrote fee schedules for dues-paying members. If initiates wanted to unlock spiritual secrets, they'd have to pay up. Of course, if an aspiring mystic wanted to learn about the occult without joining, they could also buy one of Crowley's books or attend one of his many theatrical performances. Within a few years of his initiation, membership seems to have ticked up into the hundreds again, but the Order also suffered for their association with the infamous occultist. Public scandals constantly plagued Crowley, and he actively seemed to invite negative attention. He slept with multiple people, at one point arguing he needed sex every 48 hours or he'd lose his mental sharpness. He impregnated several women out of wedlock, though not all those pregnancies came to term. He wrote about his experiments with bisexuality, which was highly controversial at the time, and he still called himself the Beast. Earlier, we explored the possibility Crowley believed he was evil because others had labeled him that way. Sociologist Howard Becker noted that some people become so preoccupied with the opinions of others that they see their negative traits as important parts of their identities. These harmful labels become their master status. When taken to extremes, a person might decide their job, their hobbies, or their social circle don't matter at all. They'll break from society to fully embody their master status. 
In Crowley's case, he may have felt driven to flout conventional morality to get a reaction from others. He may have even believed that if he wasn't pushing societal boundaries, then he wasn't being true to himself. His friend Gerald York seemed to believe Crowley didn't like scandalizing people, but felt an obligation to do so. He described Crowley's sensual impulses, saying, Crowley didn't enjoy his perversions. He performed them to overcome his horror of them. Crowley described his own thelemic rituals as repulsive, but that didn't stop his controversial behavior. At one point, he even sold pills advertised as containing the elixir of life. In reality, they were made from his semen. In 1921, 46-year-old Crowley got caught up in a new controversy after he released a book that didn't sell well. It performed so poorly that when the publishing house declared bankruptcy after its debut, it was blamed on Crowley's book. Rather than chalk the failure up to bad luck or poor market, the creditors and trustees accused the publisher of fraud. During a subsequent trial, investigators dug into their relationships with their authors, including Aleister Crowley. Soon, courtroom transcripts were full of wild stories about OTO ceremonies, involving ritual sex, irreverent religious practices, and wild bacchanalias. It didn't take long for that testimony to make its way to the press. An anonymous third party tried to bribe investigators and a prominent attorney to make the story go away. It didn't work. If anything, the allegations against Crowley and the OTO only became more bizarre as they stretched into 1922. Some journalists suggested a member of the order might have murdered William Desmond Taylor, a Hollywood film director whose homicide remains unsolved. There's no hard evidence connecting the OTO to Taylor, but when it comes to bad press, the truth doesn't matter. It's all about what the public believes. The negative coverage reached its peak in 1923, when 48-year-old Crowley lived and worked in Sicily. There, he ran a temple called the Abbey of Thelema, where he conducted magical rites with his students and followers. That February, a young man grew ill and died after a ritual in which a stray cat was killed as a sacrifice. Allegedly, the man contracted a disease after Crowley told him to drink the cat's blood. However, the diagnosis was unclear, and the man had also drunk water from a local mountain spring that day, another possible source of bacteria. Arguably, even if it was from the cat, that wasn't Crowley's fault, since he didn't know the blood would make his students sick. But he did oversee the ritual, so the press had a field day. In England, they declared Crowley the wickedest man in the world, the king of depravity, and a man we'd like to hang. The vicious coverage spurred Italy's prime minister, Benito Mussolini, to exile Crowley and shut down the abbey. The beast's performative rebellion was finally catching up with him, and it left the order's leaders in a tight spot. They realized it was time to reevaluate their relationship. Meanwhile, Crowley criticized their leader, Theodore Royce. As a reminder, Royce was one of the original founders and the man who'd personally initiated Crowley. But the beast implies Royce's knowledge of the occult was shallow. He said Royce wasn't fit to be a member of the OTO, let alone the outer head of the order. Royce snapped back and the fight further tarnished the OTO's image. However, around 1920, Royce is said to have suffered a stroke and knew his life was coming to an end. Around this time, Crowley claims the pair met privately to discuss Crowley's future with the Order. Unfortunately, there's no record of what they said, and Royce died in 1923. That left the OTO leaderless. 
Months later, the remaining OTO leaders gathered at a summit to appoint Royce's replacement. During this meeting, Crowley suddenly announced that Royce had named him as his successor before dying. The timing was suspicious. Crowley had never mentioned this conversation until the summit, and given their tense relationship, it was hard to accept that Royce had made such a dramatic decision on his deathbed. That said, nobody but Crowley knew what he'd discussed with Royce in his final days, so the summit attendees couldn't dispute his claim, though many thought he was unfit to lead. On the strength of his testimony, Crowley won his bid. In the first few years of his regime, Crowley drove away other influential members. In some cases, whole chapters formally separated from the OTO. But if Crowley was bothered by his alienation, he didn't show it. He continued to court controversy by publishing one of his most contentious books, Moonchild. The 1929 novel was officially a work of fiction, but many characters were clearly based on real people. The plot also incorporated Thelemic philosophy and blended it with Christian thought. Though he left his childhood faith far behind, 54-year-old Crowley drew inspiration from the Book of Revelation. The novel warned of a dangerous woman who would ally herself with the beast. She represented sin, ruin, and temptation. As we mentioned before, a similar figure had appeared in the Book of the Law, the Scarlet Woman, or Babylon. After his divorce, Crowley used the term Scarlet Woman to refer to several of his girlfriends and lovers. In Moonchild, he took this prophecy one step further. He wrote about a woman who possibly represented Babylon, getting caught up in a global war between good and evil magicians. She performed sex magic rituals until she was impregnated with a spiritual being, a Moonchild. Reviewers didn't think much of Moonchild as a novel. One even suggested Crowley was a has-been, someone readers couldn't possibly care about anymore. One year later, Crowley proved the critic wrong and grabbed headlines again by faking his own death. In September, while traveling through Europe with a new lover, Crowley found himself suddenly abandoned by the young woman. When he discovered she'd booked a trip on a boat back home, he decided to fake his suicide. A friend, the poet Fernando Pessoa, helped him leave a note that read, I cannot live without you, near some rocks overlooking the sea. Then he tipped the press off to the story. Meanwhile, Crowley secretly departed for Germany, trying to track down his lover. By the time he revealed he was still alive in mid-October, Crowley was back to being a household name. His ongoing notoriety served as free publicity and attracted plenty of new recruits, including amateur anthropologist Gerald Gardner. Gardner reportedly joined the OTO at some point, though the extent of his involvement is unclear. Gardner eventually moved on to found his own religion, Wicca. Wicca has unique beliefs distinct from OTO philosophy, but it's undeniable that Crowley's Thelemic principles influenced Gardner. He incorporated some of Crowley's rituals and beliefs into his faith. If not for the beast, modern Wicca would look very different today, if it existed at all. And Crowley's influence didn't stop there. He also designed a tarot deck with the artist Lady Frida Harris that's still in use now. To be clear, he didn't invent tarot. The practice had been around for hundreds of years. But Crowley believed the tarot deck of his time had too many Christian influences. So with Lady Harris, another OTO member, it was redesigned to align more with his occult values. 
Today, the Thoth deck is one of the most popular and best-selling tarot collections. If you've ever visited a medium to get your fortune read, odds are good they used Crowley's deck. Needless to say, accomplishments like these drove disciples to Crowley in spite of the controversy. On July 18, 1942, he received a letter from a new OTO initiate, a man named Jack Parsons. Parsons was a 27-year-old rocket scientist developing new technology at the recently formed Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. And he was just as eager to break rules as Crowley. Although the men hadn't met in person, Parsons shared Crowley's rebellious spirit and passion for the occult. Parsons wasn't content with calling himself the Beast or flirting with bad press, though. He wanted to change the world. So, inspired by Crowley's writings, he hatched a plan to make the Moonchild real. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two on Jack Parsons' role with the OTO. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Cults was written by Angela Jorgensen, with writing assistance by Robert Tyler Walker and Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Scotland Yard Confidential is the new Spotify original from Parcast. Enter the minds of some of the greatest detectives in history as they crack seemingly impossible cases. Join us for episodes airing weekly starting May 19th. Follow and listen for free on Spotify.